Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Tom Pattinson, and today I'm speaking with the war photographer, Paul Conroy. Nine years ago, Paul was on assignment for the Sunday Times, alongside the foreign correspondent, Marie Colvin. The Syrian war had started a year earlier, in March 2011, as part of the Arab Spring movement that saw regime change in many Middle Eastern countries. Few journalists were able to get into war-ravaged Syria, but with reports of civilians and doctors being targeted and chemical weapons being used, veteran war reporter Marie Colvin was willing to do anything to get into the country to report on the atrocities that were being committed. After a torturous journey over many days, Marie and Paul made it into the Baba Amra district in the Syrian city of Homs, but sadly, only one of them would make it out alive. I'd worked closely with Marie for many years at the Sunday Times, and like many others around the world, I watched Marie on TV telling the world of the war crimes that the Syrian regime was committing. Just hours after those final broadcasts were made, she was killed in a targeted attack that the US federal courts have called an assassination by the Syrian regime. It's been 10 years since the start of that war, and the regime is still in power, with hundreds of thousands dead and millions displaced. Marie was one of a kind, and her legacy lives on, not just in the decades of incredible war reporting that she's produced, but in the film Private War, where she was played by Rosamund Pike, and Paul was played by Jamie Dornan. Although this was the first time I'd spoken with Paul, we have a lot of friends in common, not least Marie, and his own documentary, Under the Wire, is an amazing portrayal of this incredibly brave team who would risk their own lives to tell the story of the countless women and children whose voices are so rarely heard. But first, I need to also thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you'd like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out the sister show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. As Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com. I'd also like to introduce my newest sponsor for Defiance, BlockFi. With bank interest rates at around 1%, there needs to be a new way of doing things and BlockFi allows just that. With a BlockFi interest account, you can earn up to 8.6 APY on cryptocurrency deposits with interest paid monthly into your account and no minimum balance. BlockFi also has a loan account that allows you to borrow money at rates as low as 4.5%. You can keep hold of your Bitcoin and free up some cash. Not only that, BlockFi has a credit card on the way which allows you to earn up to 1.5% back in Bitcoin with every purchase. Accounts are easy to set up, flexible and secure. BlockFi really is the future of finance. To find out more, head over to BlockFi.com. So, Paul Conroy, thank you very much for talking to me today. I'm really, first of all, I'm quite amazed we haven't actually spoken before because um, we've got a lot of mutual friends. We've got a lot of people we know in common. I worked at the Sunday Times um, about, oh, blimey, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, and worked with a number of people that, that you've worked with. And, and I worked under uh, Sean Ryan, who was my boss, uh, yeah. the foreign editor, uh, the infamous Sean Ryan, who's a fantastic <laughs> character. Um, I worked with um, lots of the, the foreign correspondents because I was sort of desk bound most of the time at the London office. And so I worked with um, John Swain and Halle Jabber and, of course, Marie Colvin, amongst yeah. others. 
um, which we might talk about a little bit more in a bit. But um, first of all, I just would really sort of like to hear a little bit about your your sort of stage into becoming a, a, a sort of photographer and specifically a war photographer because you were in the military uh, and you made that sort of leap into into media. How did that How did that come about? That it was it was actually completely accidental, and I never had. You know, it just wasn't on the radar. I, I left the army and I, I was a sound engineer. So I spent about four or five years running a studio in Liverpool, 24-track studio. I then got work with Willie Russell, the playwright, doing feature films. So I was kind of very much on this sound recording musician curve. Right. Um, but I'd, I'd always played with cameras since I was a kid. I, I was in the air cadets and I used to go flying. So I'd be, you know, kind of doing aerial photography at 14. So cameras wow. and, and, and little cheap video cameras were coming up. So I was, I was always fascinated by then. Even, even through, the, through the army days, I, I was always taking photographs. Um, but when I left, I, like I said, I drifted into the music. And, and it was a complete accident. I had some friends who were taking a, a convoy down to Kosovo. It was 98, 99. And, and I just got a call saying, well, we're, we're going to Albania. We're going to drop this aid off. Will you come and take some pictures and a, and a bit of video of the trip? And I was like, actually, it was really nice to get out of the studio because I've been in, <laughs> was, by this stage, I was just white with black rims around me. I had like engineers <laughs> tan, living on Mars bars. Yeah. So it was, it was nice to get out of the studio. Um, so, I mean, it was a bit of a bizarre convoy. There were all sorts of like, road protesters, anarchists, um, a gang of Sikh guys who, who now run Calsa Aid. So it was this real hodgepodge convoy, which was absolutely fantastic to film and, and take pictures of. We should never have made it, but we did. Um, so how, we, we, how old were you then, roughly? Oh, God, um, 99. So I think 25, 26 at yeah, I'd have to look at a calendar for that. One. But that, there, there or thereabouts. Sure. Um, um, well, we got we got to Kosovo, and and the, these guys gave all the aid away, and and I I bumped into a few photographers there, and went up to the border, and actually for the first time, that's when the the reality. I I got my first dose of the reality of war, and it you know it was that it was that time when thousands of people were coming out of Kosovo. And and initially I was very I was I was quite reticent about putting a camera in people's faces. It just felt, you know, it it's intrusive when people are in these stages of grief. But what I found was that when I did put the camera in the faces or or, or asked them the questions about their story, there was it, it just poured out because mm-hmm. I you know I, I realized what had happened is they'd all been through hell. That's why they were on a border fleeing their country. But, you know, between them, they, they'd all gone through it. So mm-hmm. there was very there was very little. They didn't moan or between themselves because everybody had been through that. Um, and when they came out and we were there, you know, for the first time, I think it was their opportunity to, to tell their story of what had happened. And, and that was, you know, that had a massive impact on me. I, I knew a lot about the mechanics of war. From the military, right. you know, yeah, um, but I'd never seen firsthand the, the results of war on 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 the, this level, and and I think that's you know many you know, many years later when I started working with Marie, the, the thing we had in common is, 
you know, that was, if you want to tell the story of war, it is really best done through the eyes of the women mm. and the children. You know, there are, there are great journalists who, who are, you know, up on the, the military aspects and the tactics and, and the politics of war. But if you, I think, you know, to get it across, we've all got a grandmother and we've all got kids, mm. you know, if you, you can tell it through their, their eyes, then you, because in reality, we get one shot a week, you know, on a Sunday paper, yep. you know, to, to, make an, to make some kind of difference. And, um, you know, that was through the women and the kids, because they're the people who always have the least say in a war zone. Mm. You know, every war zone throughout the world is one thing in common. And it is the fact that the men are out either fighting or, or doing what men do and what the you know, the people who have the least say, the least options, the least choices are the, are the women yeah. with the kids, you know. So, I, you know, and that was my first foray. Um, but, you know, after, after that, I came back and I made a film with the footage, which did really well on the on the, the festival circuit. Yeah. And, and from then on, it wasn't an immediate change. I did still do me, me engineering. Mm. But, you know, my heart really was... Um, you know, the direction was was quite stark. You know, it was a, a big change of direction. So after that, um, you know, I remember the Sunday Times, we used to have a lot of young, ambitious journalists, photographers uh, sort of coming in and saying, right, they want to head off to a war zone and take pictures. And, you know, often the advice we would give was was don't don't be daft, right? You know, this is a, a serious yeah. a serious business. It's very dangerous, as we know. And, and there's a lot of, of things that go into making sure that people who are going into these environments are safe. So did you, when you started out, you know, when you were becoming more of an established photographer, did you have any support there? Or were you sort of going in on your own and pitching to newspapers? How did it, how did that work for you? Yeah, but, but it mo- in, in the early days, you know, because, you know, as you know, with this, you somehow need to get yourself noticed yeah. and, and, and some form of reputation and, um, you know, a kind of a portfolio of work enabled to, to get further jobs. So, yeah, I think there was a fair bit of, um, you know, self-funded getting there. And I think I had the advantage, you know, of the military experience, you know, which initially when I left the army, you know, I did six years in the army and I was, well, that was useful, you know. <laughs> but I didn't really see a use for it, um, mm. but... Obviously, you know, once I'd been in a few wars, and actually, you remember quite quickly that training is ingrained and it comes back. But as as for the work, yeah, there was a lot of, um, you know, do it yourself, mm. uh, and it gets easier over time because you you, you know you you get to know picture editors, yep. you get to know the right people. But there's there is that, and I think you know people do go into war zones, um, and I think there's a certain mentality you know, that gets you through that. I think people have a very, um, like, a, a very glamorous image of what it's like. But, you know, it's like Marie said one day, she said, they, you know, they never show correspondents sitting in some terrible hotel for weeks on end yeah. waiting for a visa that may never come. You know, it's very glamorous. So, I, I, and I think, you know, a lot of people try it. A lot of people never go back. Um and and some do, you know. I've I've seen a few people who initially come in and it's their first job, and just through perseverance, and you, you kind of know they're going to make it. Just just 
they they will stick at it, you know. And the people were getting front pages. I remember in Libya there was a young girl, jo- Josie Enser from the Telegraph. You know, she was there on the on the the main battle zone in like an H and M dress and a pair of sandals and a pen, <laughs> and it was like. <laughs> You know, we saw her and it was like, come down here. Uh, but, you know, s- six years later, she's now, you know, top foreign correspondent. So it's, I think it's about approach, you know. But, of course, you know, there are casualties of that approach. Yeah. It can it can go very, very wrong. And I want to come back to that in a minute, talking about a bit about the personalities of people that, that choose to sort of spend time in these environments. But before we get there, I just wanted to sort of find out a little bit about when you first met Marie and, and started working for the Sunday Times and that, that sort of the genesis of that uh, relationship. Okay, the, I mean, the, the, the very first meeting with Marie was just fantastic. Um, it was in 2003 and it was, it was in the weeks leading up to the, the Second Gulf War. And one of the only ways, if you didn't want to be embedded, which not many of us did want to be embedded, there, you know, there were only a couple of ways into Iraq at the time. And one of them was through um, a town called Kamishli in northeastern Syria. And people just drifted in. We were all in this terrible hotel called a Petroleum Hotel, which was exactly as it sounds in the <laughs> name. And... Uh, and every day, you know, I think there were about 30 of us, all different. Sky were there, the BBC were there, you know, but a bit of a ragtag group of people trying to cross the Tigris River into Iraq from Syria. But to get to get across, you need the permission from the Syrians, the, the Muhakbarat, the secret police. So every day we'd all get up and walk down in a group, down to this little building, knock on the door. We'd all walk in and we say, can we have permission? And they go, no, but you can have a cup of tea. So we'd all sit and drink tea. Then we'd all get up and walk back and just sit around this petroleum hotel all day, waiting for the next day. And I got bored. I was just going out of my mind doing this every day. So I decided I was going to build a boat <laughs> and sail across the Tigris River <laughs> into Iraq. So I give me I give me me fixer some money, and he went out and he bought me four lorry inner tubes and some bit of rope and some wood. And then I remember setting the camera up and filming this. I was in the middle of the desert in my hotel room giggling as I inflated these massive inner tubes to build this boat and lashed it all together. And the plan was you deflate it, roll it up, put it in my fixer's car, drive to the river, sail into Iraq. And I talked two mates into coming with me. Um, so we did it. We, we got it rolled up at midnight. We loaded out the window. We bribed the guards on the road so they let us through. And about midnight, we were on the on the Tigris inflating this boat, just laughing our heads off. <laughs> and, the, and the next minute, an army patrol stumbled across the Syrian army, and there was a bit of a chase through the water, and we would like that. Wow! But they they captured us, and then they 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 put you know it was quite a scary scene actually. They had their, they put bags on our heads and took us to this little room, tied us to chairs, and wow. lots of cocking of Kalashnikovs next to our ears. <sighs> no one spoke English, and you know my Arabic is, at the time was quite awful. <laughs> but eventually, this guy came in and he goes, "Do you speak English?" And I was like, "Yeah." He said, "Where are you from?" And I was like, "Liverpool." And he went, ah, oh, Stephen Gerrard, Michael <laughs> Owen. And I was like, yes, result. <laughs> and so he took the bag off me and gave me a fag, made me a cup of coffee off the stove, and we're chatting about Liverpool. Brilliant. And the next, about 20 minutes later, I had 
Can you take the bag off our head too? <laughs> it's me two mates. So after, after about three days, they let us go. They, they you know, they checked, took all our tapes and all of that, and but they did let us go. And back at the hotel, all of the other press, no, they were all like, "You've ruined our war. We're never going to get across that border now." So I was Billy No Mates at the end of the bar, <laughs> just sitting there like no one wanted to talk to me. And then the, it was about 10, 11 at night and the door opened and silhouetted in the doorway is Marie. I've never met her before and I just said, who and where is the boatman? <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> and I put my hand up and I went, it's me. And she come across and she just stood there and she went, boatman, I like your style. Marie Colvin, Sunday Times, can I buy you a whiskey? And I said, of course. And uh, we sat down and, and that was it. We bonded over a bottle, a bottle of scotch that mm-hmm. night, and she just loved that. You know, Marie would never be part of the the crowd. Um, you know, if there was a pack of journalists, she'd be doing another way. Yeah, you know. Um, but that that was the first time I met. It was. It wasn't till um, the Arab Spring started that we actually, you know, we we kept in touch over the years. But then the Sunday Times. Um, got in touch and said, you know, you know Marie, don't you? Mm. And I was like, yep. And said, well, you know, do you want to do the um, meet up with her in Egypt and, and head into Libya, which which we did. But um, I always went back to that, that, you know, Marie was kind of had a reputation as being, you know, she would lose photographers quite quickly, mm. you know, in, on jobs, you know, the amount of people they tried to pair it off with. Yeah. Um, and it never, it never really went fantastically. Um, but I, I just think, you know, everything with us boiled back to that weird meeting in Syria, Fantastic. you know, yeah, yeah, all them years ago. So brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I always, I mean, I think first time I met, I was, I was terribly intimidated. I think because I was probably sort of this young rookie, you know, journalist, fresh out of uni, pretty much. And there's this very sort of powerful, intimidating, experienced woman who's, as you say. Very yes. direct, <laughs> straight in there. Sean, Sean Ryan said in the, in the film Under the Wire, he said, you know, one photographer said she was scarier than the war that was there covering. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. So then we're just going to sort of ask a little bit about how that, that period of in Syria and Homs in 2012, what, what sort of process that, that took. I mean, obviously we've seen the film, your film, and, and the, other, the other film as well. But just sort of walk us through those, those sort of key dates there and, and um, as well as actually what happened. I mean, just for me, I'm sort of interested to really know how, what the hell was going through your mind, you know, the, the tension and the, the fear, I presume. Yeah. Well, it's it starts, you know, I, I on on exactly on that. I remember watching the documentary for the first time because I wasn't involved in the edit, and I watched right. this process of us. Yeah, I just thought one director's enough, but I watched um, this process of us going into, you know, like it's like it was like going through the seven circles of hell, and for the first time I saw it how someone else must see right. it, yeah. which was an unusual an unusual perspective on you. And and it, you know, I was like, "Oh God, what were you thinking?" But at the time, when you get there, it, it always—it's always a series of steps. Mm. So we, you know, we we'd get to Beirut, and then we, you know, we spent a week in Beirut, meeting people, arranging, organizing, you know, getting. You, so much of this is done on trust. Yeah. You know, when you you're introduced to somebody, and it's like. You know, we are effectively going to put our lives in these people's hands, and you don't have a lot to go on. Mm. 
So, you know, the more time you can spend with people, the more feel you can get from of them. And that's critical. But it was it was it was get to know people. And then when it happened, it happened quite quickly. They came in and said, Right, you're going. And from that point on, we were you you go through this process of getting passed to the next person who'll take you to the next zone. Um, and all the time it's a series of little steps. Mm. And and the, the the further you go down them little steps, the more acclimatized you become. So initially when they start shooting, you know, you're on absolute full alert, you know, mm. no matter how many times you've done it, when when the first shots fly or the first shells land, you know, adrenaline comes up. But what you, what what I found is over the the time we're there, we get more and more just used to our environment. Right. Yeah. So so when you see us saying, you know, someone says get in that tunnel, you know, that's like from the outside looking at the film, it's that's a huge leap of faith. But for us, we'd been there long enough that you know we'd gone through all of the small steps. Mm. So it was just another step, you know, getting into the tunnel, coming out of the tunnel. It looks. You know, it looks like no sane person should ever do that in the films. Because actually you well, had spent several days, you know, getting uh, getting towards Homs and, and, and then uh, getting in the back of cars, you know, getting trusting people, staying in places where you had no yeah. idea. Then you went into this tunnel, which would get you into the town centre effectively, which was being devastated. And how much did you know what was going on in there? I mean, were you aware that you were walking into something that was yeah. incredibly dangerous? Well, Unusually, we knew too, you know, I'd say we almost knew too much mm. because we'd been, all the time we were in Beirut and outside of Homs prior to getting in the tunnel, the the activists in the media centre had cameras set up and, you know, they had the, an internet link that was pretty much broadcasting it live. So even in Beirut, we were sat with a laptop looking at this, um, just a shot of all the roofs in Homs. And it was just exploding. Mm. And, you know, it's very rarely you get that opportunity to see, you know, I can remember both sitting looking at it going, hmm, <laughs> you don't see this on, um, you know, a BBC travel show, you know, and it was, it was quite, and it was on, it was very unnerving. You know, to be honest, I'd, I'd probably not preferred not to have seen that because right, yeah. we, we had such an idea of what you were going into. That often, you know, it's it's ignorance can be blessed sometimes, and we just did say to each other, if any of us ever have any serious doubts, we go with the person with the doubts, you know. So that was always, and that was an agreement, you know. So if Maria had said, "That's too much," you know, I would have respected that and vice versa, and so that's your kind of not a get out clause, but it's just an understanding that that we both had. Because that's, I mean, that's what I was just going to ask. You, it must have been that moment getting in the tunnel where you thought, oh, fuck, I've, I've made a big mistake here. We, we should be going the, the other way. <laughs> and do you sort of, <laughs> is it not tempting to tug on someone's shirt sleeves and say, like, you know, let's turn around? Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I like this. I don't think I like um, this anymore. <laughs> I, re- I did get a case of that when we were going through, because this tunnel was the lifeline between um, Homs, Baba Amra, the, the neighbourhood in Homs we were going. This was the lifeline that everything went through, the food, the people, the injured, you know, everybody, everything went through this tunnel. It was horrendous. It was about three and a half foot high. You bent double. 
And, you know, the only traffic in the tunnel was coming out of Homs. And, you know, I do remember people looking at us, you know, we had little head torches on and you know, we were going one way and every other person was coming the other way. And they were giving us shot about this. And, mm. you know, it's, but, you know, it's that, again, you committed then. And the second time we went in, we did get in. We spent a few days there. We came out because we were told it was going to be, there was going to be an attack. Um, and the, the activists really didn't want us to die in there. So they, they got us out. Um, the attack didn't happen. We had, the intelligence was that Assad's forces were coming in. So we spent another two days outside Homs and then decided, you know, Sean, I think, said, report from outside. Mm. And we were a bit naughty. We turned our phones off and went back in without without telling the paper. And I, I think they found out when, when we were back, we found them and said, oh, we're, we're back. You know, which <laughs> easier to ask forgiveness than permission, I think, was right, our, yeah. our logic. <laughs> but I do remember before... We were we were holed up in a little building, and there was a sweet old lady and, and uh, the sheikh and his wife, and they were making us teas. And before we got into the into the tunnel for the second time, and during that hour or two waiting, I really did start to get a really ominous feeling. Really, you know that I I'd never really had before. But and as I said in the in the film, it wasn't wasn't something I knew. It wasn't something I'd seen. It was nothing extra other than a feeling that this this doesn't feel right. Yeah. So I kind of, you know, I had the duty to explain that to Marie, and I said, something feels wrong about this, I've got a bad feeling. So at this point, you'd already been in for a couple of days, you'd seen how bad it was, you'd come out again, bearing in mind you're sort of working on a weekly cycle for a Sunday paper, um, and then, of course, you decided to go back in again. This is when you got this sort of feeling in your gut. Um, what did what did Marie say to that, and then and then what happened after you went back in? Um, Marie just listened very diligently and then laughed. She said, well, I'm the reporter and you're the photographer. If you want to go home, you can. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. But just showing up at the office. <sighs> she went in. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, only saying. <laughs> and and it was never mentioned again, but it was just something I had to get off my chest. You yeah. know, it was... And there's been many times in various situations where we both get the feeling we're both driving down an empty road in the desert and we both look at each other and go and turn back. Yeah. No reason, just if you both feel like that. And there's times when she's like, I don't like this. And it's okay, okay, let's go back. But, you know, I mean, we were a team. They, yeah. they were my feelings. But there was, you know, the situation in Homs, you know, demanded that we go back, really. This was what we both did. This was literally 25,000 women and children huddling in a basement, mm. getting slaughtered, you know, and Marie's, you know, very much, if they can't leave, neither should we. So, you know, and there was very much, you know, a feeling that if we report this, if we get it right, if we tell this story right, then maybe we can stop you know that you know that was very much on our minds was you know this has to stop you know this was this wasn't war this mm. was just slaughter they were just slaughtering people and you know we really thought if, if the world knew maybe the world would would intervene so it was a bit more than just the story you know it it was a, an obligation in many ways 
and I think you know, Marie's work from a lot of a lot of the stuff she did over all of her career was very much more than the story, wasn't it? It was about trying to get messages out, and I think that's something that, that yeah. her legacy has has really proved to be true. But um, once you'd gone in there for the second time, this is when you were, or Marie was doing a lot of live TV and and um, doing stuff with CNN and doing stuff with other news channels. This is this is presumably what what the theory is that that. Um, this, the regime was tracking some of these calls and therefore pinpoint locating uh, you for, for what would then be a, a, the final war, that, that assault. Yeah, um, we we knew for sure that the um, that the the satellite phones were a big danger, so we 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 used them as little as possible. Yeah, but doing the, I think we did Channel Four, BBC, CNN that evening. That was about, I think we started about ten o'clock in the evening. Um, and it went on for a few hours, and we we hey look, it was live. You know these that that what they were doing, they really didn't want anything getting out. They certainly didn't want live broadcasts coming out of there. So we and we we had this discussion with the guys in the media center because we were using their satellite link to um to get to get the the Skype calls out. Um, so you know we were we had to say to them, look, you know, if we do this live. There will probably be some response, you know, because I don't think we're going to get away with doing it and then the regime being fine. Mm. And their their, their, their their reply was very much, you have to do it. This is, you know, this is why you're here. Mm. Um, so we cleared it with them, but we did know it wasn't going to bring good things for us. We didn't, but what we didn't know was that the the regime had, in fact, we found this all out at the, the court case that we had in America just how much time and effort and um, resources they put into tracking tracking journalists and uh, locating them. And that you know, was it. There was, a, there was a whole network in place specifically for, for, for I think specifically for us at some point. Mm. And was that a combination of both sort of the technology they, they were uh, using? Yeah, we, 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 we were told they picked us up at Lebanon. They tracked us from the airport in Beirut. Wow. This all came out afterwards. Um, I was in Spain doing something, and I got a call from our lawyer who was representing us in the, the court case in America, and they said they picked you up from Beirut, all the way through Beirut, all through the Bacar Valley, over the mountains. They they kind of actually knew us by name. So wow. it was it was, and that was quite a shock because we we kind of figured, yeah, they they'd seen the broadcasts. And and they just took their revenge, you know. They they just lashed out, but you know we we never realised just just how much time and effort they put into tracking journalists. Um, they they I think the Arab League um, representative who went in were, were also pulled back by the regime and asked, you know, where are the journalists? So they were quite specifically after foreign press, and Which... we were also told by the um, Lebanese intelligence that any. Any journalists found in or around the neighborhood of Homs were to be executed and have their bodies wow. thrown on the battlefield. And that's before we went in, we knew that. So, which must have uh, been one of the first conflicts that where they were sort of so directly and almost openly admitting that journalists were no longer bystanders or witnesses, but actively going to be targeted and, and yeah. assassinated. Yeah, I've never, I've never come across that level before. You know, it's got worse over the years. You know, because as information um, travels faster, um, 
and, and and can have strategic benefits. You know, they, you know, whether you're doing bad stuff or good stuff, you know, the speed of information has made the job more difficult over the years. You know, the time was you could you could slip past, you know, the front line with a 200 Marlborough and a bottle of scotch, you know, and someone would wave you through. Yeah, then I think them days are long, long mm. gone. So then we're just sort of getting to the point where you had done these broadcasts. That was uh, at night your time, was that right? And then the the, yeah. the big volley came the following morning, or overnight, but sort of very early in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, we'd, um, we'd done it. We, we went to sleep and they'd given us a little back room full of carpets and blankets. So I think we... The, the the French Edith Bouvier and Remy Oshlich showed up immediately after we'd done them broadcasts, um, and horribly enough, they weren't going to the, the Free Syrian Army had held them outside of Homs, saying it was too dangerous to come in. And then, I think on Al Jazeera, a shot of me and Marie came up that one the rebels had taken, and Remy went, Ah, that's Paul. We know them. And they went, okay, you know, you can go in, which was, yeah, you know, probably the last thing anyone should have been doing because we knew we were in trouble. Yeah. And um, so they showed up. We, we had a great chat for an hour. And then we went to bed about one, one, one o'clock. And the plan was to get up at 5.30 and go back to the field, field hospital to get some more stuff for the next um, Sunday. And it was at about 6.30. We got up and we were being really quiet. Everyone, there was a room full of about 20 activists all asleep and a few of them skyping. And um, we were waiting for our guy to go to the field hospital. And then the shelling started and there were, there were two rockets impacted, I'd say about 100 metres either side of our building, which given that they were the size rockets, that was quite close. And then there was um, like a 30-second gap and then two more impacted. And these must have been about 20, 30 yards. And at that point, I recognized the there was a fire pattern. You know, they fired two. They had a drone, which would have adjusted the shots. So the next, it's called bracketing. And then the next two shots come in closer. And at that point, someone started shouting, get out, get out. And I was like, absolutely not. If you're in the streets with them, them landing, any cover is better than no cover in that situation. So people were screaming, get out. I was shouting, don't. And then I just remember seeing Marie and Remy had got their helmets on, roughly on flak jackets on. And, uh, and then, boom, an almighty, almighty explosion. I'd lost track of them because they, 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 the rockets were then hitting the building. One had hit the roof, so it was full of dust. One had taken out the room that we were just in, and then there was another that that actually did the damage. And I, I didn't remember. I I was conscious. I, I, I had no sense of being hit, um, but the, the almost deafened, just a high-pitched ring and stood there. And I thought a brick had hit my leg. So I kind of put my hand down and it, my hand just went straight through my leg, went in one side, out the other side. And I was like, Phew. and rather bizarrely, <laughs> I think this is down to shock. I was stood there with my hand through my leg and I was like, oh no, 
hospital food. They, they were my first thoughts. <laughs> because I was imagining these leathery potatoes and gravy all congealed, you know, like some horrible slops. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and then, then I remember, do you remember when Jamie Oliver tried to feed kids healthy yeah. food and the parents were there shoving burgers through the, the bars? I was thinking, oh, someone can bring me something in. And then it was like, oh, actually, you better fix your leg. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of, I grabbed the artery, checked that that was more or less intact, had the root around, felt the bone, that was intact. And then I had um, a cafe of the scarf on, which I, I wrapped around and put a tourniquet on because I was losing losing a lot of blood at that point. And then I, I stood up and I was like, right, Marie and Remy, where's the rest of, where's everybody else? And um, this, the whole front of the building had gone at that point. So I, I took a few steps. My leg just didn't work. I, I, I was not quite together. And my leg crumpled under me and I actually fell on Marie and Remy. Mm. I knew for the first time that they'd really... Um, you know, they'd been hit and I I kind of, I knew Remy was dead. Um, Maria just put my hand on it, no movement, and uh, and, and she was gone. But then um, as I did that, the attack started again. They started dropping big 80 mil mortars around me. So I was in the open at this point, and I think the drone had seen movement, seen me moving in the rubble. So they started the attack again, and for about the next 15, 20 minutes, I was just, it was kept catching my arms and legs little bits, and it was just screaming past my head, and that's all I could do. But in it, also, I looked down, and the pool of blood around me was getting a lot bigger, so my leg was still leaking. Mm. Um, so during that attack, I, I saw an Ethernet cable buried in the rubble, which I leaned over, grabbed, and this time I put a an Ethernet cable around my leg with a piece of wood and wound it up, managed to, to stem the bleeding as best I could. And then after another 10, 15 minutes, the shelling stopped. And a couple of the guys from the media centre ran out and grabbed me back in mm. um, and lean, just leaned me against the wall, really. Um, and, and I do remember being astonished that I wasn't in any pain. You know, they, I think... My whole system was flooded with chemicals. And the pain, they gave me a cigarette. <laughs> I was like, can I have a fag? And so I'm just like, oh. and the moment I had the drag on the, the ciggy, my leg, I was like, well, it does sting a bit. And then, and, and that must have been my body going, he's smoking, he's all right. Yeah. He can feel some pain now. <laughs> and then it, it was a rapid escalation. <laughs> it did start hurting quite a bit. <laughs> So in those few minutes there, obviously, the shelling carried on for 15 minutes, as you say. Those 15 minutes and then the time afterwards when you're out of, um, you know, the shelling stopped, you're out of immediate danger in terms of being being hit, but obviously you're still aware of the very present danger of your injuries. Do you have time to, to for this to sink in? Is it is the shock hitting you? What, what's happening mentally? At the time, you know, the moment I knew Marie was dead, I, I think you, you, it's almost, I felt guilty, I think, because you, you're preconditioned to, to assume that when faced with such a loss that you'd immediately feel the emotion. And I didn't. I actually, 
I, I felt completely blank. I, I, I was being practical. Mm. I was being like my leg. And and I remember they took me out of there. They eventually got me to the field hospital. And uh, to be honest, I was searching for emotion. I, you know, I wanted, you know, I knew I should. And I, I think there was a, a dilemma going on. It was like, why am, why can't I feel anything? Mm. You know, I've just lost one of probably my best friend. has just been blown up in front of me. And I'm struggling to find any emotion. Um I did speak to a lot of doctors afterwards, and they said that is absolutely normal. Yeah. You know, um, the stuff that protects you physically, you know, there's a, there's a hell of a lot going on in your brain with, um, you know, hormones and cortisol flooding your system. So, you know, the, the, and it, it was really, it was survival. It took me like six days after that to get out. And it was only when I was, I really, really hit me finally when I was out of that environment and I arrived back in London, you know, on a, a little medijet and they got me to a hospital. Then it hit me, then the loss. But, you know, then five days, six days, whatever it was, were a real, um, you know, I was, I was trying to stimulate the, the pain that I knew was there because mm. I wanted to feel it, you know, it, I felt guilty for not feeling it. It was a very strange um, feeling. But it, it, and after that, it became, you know, after the initial treatment when they so stitched my leg up and all of that and got me stable, you know, there was five days of just, they knew we were alive then, so they were trying to kill us still. So the building we were in was targeted, and we just endured five days of the heaviest bombardment I've I've ever known. And... And that was its own mental battle because, you know, we were getting hit every 10 minutes, something to take a part of the building away. So there was just this screaming explosion after explosion after explosion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of getting to this mindset, this, this might, you know, that sound might be the last sound I ever hear. More than likely, you know, it wasn't a possibility. It was more than likely. Yeah this is going to happen, you know, so we, you were constantly prepared for that final moment. So there wasn't ever time to process, really process emotions. It was about, is this my last thought? You know, it's a, it's a very weird place to be because they were so hell bent on finishing the job that the chances of surviving it seemed so remote. Um, yeah. And this is all while, you know, those five days, five, six days, you've got life-threatening injuries, you know, regardless of being um, hit again, you, you're probably thinking you might, you might not survive the injuries you've already sustained. What, what, can you just talk about what happened? Uh, how did you get out of that, that situation over those days? Obviously, the shelling was relentless over, you know, every, every 10 minutes, as you say, but how did you actually eventually get back out? Um, there were, we came in through the tunnel, um, and what happened over the five day that five day period? Uh, I knew my leg was going bad. I could smell it. You know, they only had limited. They'd stapled it all together. The, this big hole. They got an office staple gun and stapled my leg together, and they they'd scrubbed the inside with a toothbrush and a bottle of iodine, and and they had no anaesthetic. That you know, I didn't even have the paracetamol they kindly offered me. So, so I knew it was bad. What I didn't know is I had a lot of shrapnel in my body as well. What just wasn't enough time to find that. Mm. So for five days we waited, um, but 
what happened in that five days is the tunnel was hit by a rocket. So the tunnel had collapsed, and that was literally our only way out, mm. was to go through that tunnel, um, which eventually they, they we, we didn't know they were working on it, but they they came in one night on day five or six and said, you're going. And they just started, you know, they put Edith on a stretcher. They gave me a pair of trousers to put on and um, took us outside of the building. And it was, you know, absolutely flabbergasted. We went in and there was a street. There was, we were on a road. Mm. When we came out, there was nothing left. It was just deep in rubble. And the building we were in was made of black basalt and not yeah. concrete. And they put us there specifically because it, it, it takes explosions better. It withstands explosions better. But when we came out, there was nothing left. Mm. It was like the whole street had been blown up. The amount of effort they put into killing, you know, yeah, killing you guys. Yeah, absolutely. It was just remarkable that they, they, they were so determined. Mm. Um, they put us in trucks. And at this point, there was, there was absolutely no pretense at stealth, you know, all the lights were on. They threw us in these vehicles and they just hit the gas and we just, we had to drive through the front line. And consequently, as we were driving with the headlights on, they just opened up with us with everything they had. And it was lit, you know, I think 23 of us set off on that trip, on that escape. And I think 13 guys were killed. Wow. Just getting us through through the front line. It was just, and I was just like, well, here goes, you know, that's how desperate it was. Here goes nothing. And we just drove through and we had to punch through, and they, which they did. And they got us to the tunnel. You know, eventually we arrived. It wasn't that far. It was only a few miles, but it felt like a pretty long trip. Yeah. Um, they dropped us at the tunnel, tied a rope around me, and lowered me into this hot tunnel. And and I remember they, there was a motorbike. They ran a motorbike up and down the tunnel for the really sick. They cut the handlebars down on you. Wow. Two people had to lay on it. And they were saying, go. And I, and I you know, there was a lot of women and kids all hidden in the tunnel. And, you know, it's like, I can't go before them. And there was a bit of an argument. I'm going, I'm being very British. I'm going, women and children first. And they're going, no, you idiots. <laughs> and and eventually one of the guys he just said look he said Paul our friends are dead their families are dead your friends are dead and and the deal was you go out you know we need you to tell our story you know that they've been telling their story for months and the world wasn't listening and said so they'll listen to you and it, it was really hard but that was you know that was the deal I made I said all right I will tell your story and they just had enough of me, stuck me on the bike. And uh, I thought that was it then. I thought, okay, I'm, I might make this. For the first time, I actually thought, I might make this. And then about three quarters of the way down the tunnel, we came across the blockage, and it was just a mud. It was full. The tunnel was full, and at the very top, there was a hole about that big. Oh, and about yeah. that way, big enough for a human head and shoulders if you climb up. So they pushed me up into this hole. And the only way I could get through it was to put my hands in front of me and with my fingertips pull myself through this hole. It was about two, three meters long, which 
I was managing okay, and then I, I got stuck. Out. Oh, no. And uh, what had happened is a piece of steel rebar had gone through the hole in my leg mm. and had me pinned inside this crawl space, which was just like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, ah, oh, really? This, this is ridiculous. And I tried, I, did, I gave a tentative little pull to see what it would be like, and, it, you know, it just hurt. Yeah. But there was a queue building up behind me. And it was a bit like, she's right. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, a bit stuck. Um, <laughs> so in the end, I just had to bite the bullet. And, and I just spent about five minutes just yanking my leg with mm. all I could and, and just ripped it open even more until till it got free of the rebar. And uh, it was, yeah, yeah. At that point, it was like, ah, oh, whatever. Um, and I, I kind of fell out the other end eventually, still in the tunnel. Then two guys picked me up on a piece of plastic and dragged me to the end of the tunnel where I had to then crawl across a field. There were snipers about, so they're going like, shh, crawl. So then I had to crawl across a field. I feel a bit knackered by this point. And then two guys at the end were waiting for me, <laughs> picked me up, put me on this guy's back, to give me a piggyback. And as we're, as we're going along, his hand slips and goes in my leg. Mm. And so I'm, and, and it's just, I can't shout because the sniper's everywhere. So I just start hitting him, like on his back, saying, kind of get the message through that your hand's in my leg. Mm. And he thought I was going, go faster. He thought I was whipping him to go faster. <laughs> so he's getting faster. And I'm like, ah. And, and then eventually his mate kind of saw the dilemma and stopped them. <laughs> but he must have thought, cheeky bugger, he wants to go faster. Um, and then it was just, <laughs> but for the next couple of days then, it was like from building to building and, you know, people would look after me and I remember waking up and two old men were feeding me honey and oranges and I was getting more feverish with the, with the injuries. And then, yeah, most of it was done on motorbikes, on the back of motorbikes, which was a bit jarring as well. And eventually they, they let me out at this uh, this little hut in the mountains, and I'd made a stick, and I kind of hobbled into this hut. And it was a really bizarre scene. There was two guys sat with Kalashnikovs and smoking, a little hut with a single light bulb watching Tom and Jerry <laughs> cartoons. And I was like, in Arabic, I'm going, Wayne, where am I? Lebanon or Syria, and they just looked at me, laughed, and went, "You're in Lebanon." And wow. I was like, you know, and, and that's the that's the first time, you know, I knew you might I, right. I was I was going to make it. You know, I was going to get through. Um, so, yeah. Uh, then how can I ask how how are your injuries now, and how long did it take to recover? Are you fully recovered? I mean, do you still have um, some pain, or yeah, me 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 leg aches, you know. On occasion, if I do too much, it aches. But, you know, I mean, I think I had like 21 operations on it to, to rebuild it. You know, they, they did um, the, the surgeons at London Bridge Hospital. And, um, Paddy Mohanna, my surgeon, she just did wonders. And what I didn't realize was just I had like a huge piece of shrapnel had gone in my side wow. and wedged under my kidney. Um, so when I woke up, I had essentially been cut in half on one side. <laughs> I kind of woke up and I was like, well, I only had 
so leg, and now I, I, appear, <laughs> I appear to have been cut in half. Oh my god! But apparently, it took them fourteen hours to dig this the shrapnel out from inside, and apparently, it wedged about two millimeters from my kidney. So all of that stuff on motorbikes and everything, this this yeah. little piece of shrapnel was scratching away. Um, but they, they did say if that had scratched your kidney, that would have been, mm. you know, uh, septicemia, toxic shock. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't have made it. Um, but no, I've, I've, you know, it took a long time to get walking again. They had to re cut all my hamstrings up and re reconfigure them. There was only half a hamstring left. So they, they kind of cut that into three and threaded it about and did their magic. And, you know, it's generally all right. I can do straight lines really well. Lifting is is an issue. Mm. It just, it's just not, simply not as strong. Um, but that's completely understandable. Yeah. Um, but all, no, all things considered, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty healthy. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about the federal court order, uh, which said that the Syrian regime was... Um, responsible for an assassination effectively and that, that they were liable to pay, I think, $302 million, $302.5 million yes, like to uh, the family of Marie. The, uh, obviously, uh, I presume nothing's actually happened, uh, come out of that, has it? Nothing's actually... No, no, I mean, I think, um, I think if anything ever does happen, it'll be, you know, out of Syrian assets. But, you know, that is such a long... I think they're frozen accounts in... Mm in the States, I, th- I think that's that's a maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone's holding their breath, but I think it was the point, that, you know, it, it was the principle, you know, it yeah, was actually getting getting a decision. And and that evidence now, you know, I've got um, I've got the, F- the FBI have been on to me lately, you know, and they're talking now about criminal, you know, because this was a civil proceeding. Right. But now the FBI are actually, and the beauty is it, it's been through a legal system, the evidence we presented for Maria's case, which which it means it's been road tested in a court. Mm. So if the FBI now bring this criminal case, then, you know, we, we know the evidence is good. And do you know who that's going to be against? Would it be after specific people within the, within the military then? Um, I think we can get it up to um, Maha Assad. Um, his brother, because he was head of the, um, I think it was, it was called the Crisis, the Crisis Committee, which would operated as um, a separate unit um, to look after the, you know, to, to put down the demonstration. Mm. So we can, we, we said that they documented things, that, you know, as in the Caesar photographs, you know, they, 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 they were more bureaucratic than the Nazis. In fact, it turns out that a lot of them after after the war, it was the Stasi who um, Hafez al Assad learned their intelligence from, and the Stasi were notorious for documenting everything. That's right. uh, and so the Syrians have done the same. Hence yeah. the Caesar photographs, and so the, the the actual paper trail that goes right back to the very top. You know, it's it's not a genetic um, Syrian state. You know, we can actually name name names and ranks. So, but do, presumably, until there is some conclusion to this sort of ongoing war, it's going to be hard to uh, you know see anyone prosecuted. Presumably, um, having, having said that, you know we are now just sort of sort of com- coming up to what to ten years of the start ten of the years. war, um, and that's seen what half a million dead, six and a half million uh, displaced, uh, and of course, you know 
countries from America, Turkey, Russia, everybody sort of piling into this thing. And and still we haven't really seen a conclusion or or, or an ending to it. No. What's no, your, I mean, what, there's, there's, there's still bombing schools. You know, um, there was a, a, a really good friend of mine, Dr. Rolla Hallam, did a, they did a panorama last night following up from an attack eight years ago where they napalmed a school and they, they, they went back and they interviewed the kids. And, you know, and, and they, they were highlighting the fact that after 10 years of conflict, they're still at it, you know, that it, it's no closer and, and I, no closer to an end than in uh, the foreseeable future. And the reality is that there, there won't be an end and until, until, you know, this is why accountability and justice is critical mm. because you know, they've suffered what they've suffered for 10 years. You know, can the world really expect them? To, to go back to being ruled by Assad. Yeah. You know, I mean, that is just so un, unfeasible and immoral to ask that of them. So, you know, this is why the justice and the end are so tied up, you know, that having seen it firsthand and followed it for 10 years, mm. you know, from a very close level, you know, that you cannot put this genie back in the bottle. Absolutely. You know, once it's out, it's out. And, and I think, you know, the the world collectively has to realize that for, in order to, to be any kind of resolution there, you know, it can't be under the side. It, it, it simply can't. Mm. Um, you know, they may, as they, they think now, they may have quelled it in most regions. Yeah. But it's going to, it'll be like a bushfire. You know, they put one bit out there and while they're doing that, it'll spring up there. Yeah. And, you know, as soon as, as soon as Putin, as soon as Assad, outlives as usefulness to Russia, maybe then we'll get some progress. But, you know, while we have the United Nations, that, you know, the other, the other awful part of this is the, the United Nations veto, the Security Council veto, has now become a weapon of war, mm. you know, that Russia and China, Russia particularly, you know, will block, you know, the siege relief with the veto, you know, they will, they will block aid drops with the veto, you know, so that what, what was there as a safeguard is now actually being flipped. It's been, weaponized, and it's, been yeah. it's been weaponized. They've weaponized the veto. And, you know, what kind of a, you know, how people can look each other in the face at the, at, you know, at these high levels of government, you know, and yeah. what we've seen for 10 years, it's an abject failure of, of any uh, foreign I, policy. Absolutely. Even the, you know, the 2012, the red lines that Obama uh, allowed to be crossed after refuting yeah. them. I mean, fatal. You know, I mean, what? You don't play chess with the Russians and and make mistakes like that. They will they will exploit it to the to the eleventh degree. That's right. Um, I'm very conscious of time, but I just wanted to ask you about the. I mean, obviously, your your own documentary um, under the wire, which was fantastic. Did you enjoy the portrayal of your character uh, in The Private War? A Private War? What's not to like? <laughs> Done me no harm, <laughs> haven't you? <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, was, that was very strange again. You know, that was, um, that was a weird one because, you know, it was, they did such a, Jamie was a lovely guy, you know, mm. it, was, it was my job to teach him to be me and then we just got there and it was like, shall we go to the pub in Jordan for a month? <laughs> and, but Rosmond, Rosmond was was so dedicated to getting, you know, 
capturing the essence yeah, of Marie. It was astounding. I saw Rosamund yeah. Pike, we, we saw at the premiere, and it was quite astounding how her, you know, her movements, not just her voice yeah. and her accent, it was, it sent shivers up my spine. Yeah, yeah, I really did that. I mean, I met Ros in the Frontline Club, before, you know, long before the film went into production. I was with the director, Matt Hyman, and there's Ros, and she's all elegant. She's mm. like a graceful, beautiful swan. There's me, I'm imagining Marie with her, her hair, her incon- uncontrollable hair, a fag god, what the fuck god? <laughs> and there's Ros, and I'm like, this is going to be a tough ask. <laughs> And then when I got on set in Jordan six months later, she came out of the caravan. And like you say, the movements, yeah. the way she walked, the way she held a pen, the way she held her pad, she, you know, it was quite really, really was a shock to see mm. it initially. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, they were they were so, they, they, the feeling on that movie was they, you know, they really wanted to do it, what she did justice. And I think they did, you know, I think they really... Yeah, I agree. Put their heart and soul into that, and I think it's another, like, you know, another great part of Marie's legacy. Really, I mean, I think what she did throughout her career, journalistically, you know, has, has been uh, recognised. But I think by by creating something like that as well, it's really bringing not just her life story, but also the story of what what you guys went through in in Syria uh, into the forefront of everybody's mind. Um, it's just a shame that still so many years on, we haven't reached a, a conclusion. Yeah. To that. Yeah, I don't think, you know, if you'd have asked me or Marie 10 years ago if we'd, how long we thought this would last, you know, we thought, mm. you know, give it a year, hopefully, you know, never, never, ever, ever imagined 10 years down the line, we'd still be watching, you know, yeah. still be watching it being played out as ruthlessly as it is. Yeah. Uh, in uh, that sense. I could talk to you all day because I'm sure we've got lots of tales and things we could share. Um, but we're conscious of time; we're running out of time a little bit. But um, let's hopefully after lockdown, let's try and catch up and have have a It'd real conversation a... over beers yeah. and uh, a proper night. Yeah, remember beer? I yeah, know in a pub. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stop it now! You're teasing. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, but listen, it's been oh, it's been really, really uh, interesting and a real honour to hear your story and and the way you've told it so so eloquently and wonderfully. So I appreciate it uh, very much. And hopefully, yeah, in a few weeks, we can continue telling some stories and hearing some more um, over, over a beer. Yeah, in the flesh. Brilliant. Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. I All appreciate right, um, it. Great stuff, mate. Thanks for everything. Take care now. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I'd like to thank Paul Conroy for sharing his story with us today. Please do take the time to watch his excellent documentary, Under the Wire, or the film A Private War, or read the fantastic book about Marie's life, In Extremis, by Lindsay Hilsom. I need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com. Also BlockFi, the future of financial services. Earn up to 8.6% with a BlockFi interest account. With a BlockFi loan, you can borrow money at rates as low as 4.5%, keep hold of your Bitcoin and free up some cash. Accounts are easy to set up, flexible and secure. To find out more, head over to BlockFi.com.